Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. Tonight on The Readout. I'm sorry I'm so upset, but please help President Trump. If you can fi- afford five or ten bucks, if you can't afford a dollar, fine. Just pray. Pray for this country. Pray for this president. And if you got any money to give, give it. Empty your piggy bank. Sell your jewelry. Trump and company are begging for your last few dollars to pay his bills and judgments. It's the biggest grift in American political history. Start a cult and watch the money roll in. Also tonight, two critical Trump-related rulings from the Supreme Court could be imminent, involving his claim of absolute immunity and on whether states can kick him off the ballot under the 14th Amendment. But we begin tonight with a dictator's fears. The body of Alexei Navalny is still being held hostage by the Russian penal system. Because even in death, Vladimir Putin is afraid of him. Members of Navalny's team have said that Russian authorities claim the cause of Navalny's death is still unknown. And they have refused to release his body for the next two weeks as a preliminary inquest continues. Navalny's mother has been standing outside the penal colony pleading directly to Putin for the return of her son's remains. Shortly after her appeal, police announced a new criminal case against Alexei Navalny's younger brother, Oleg. On Monday, Navalny's widow, Yulia, created a Twitter account and accused Putin of a cover-up. Elon Musk's ex suspended the account briefly for spam or abuse. And you should know that holding a body hostage isn't new for Vladimir Putin. Shortly after FSB agents poisoned Navalny with a nerve agent back in 2020, Doctors refused to release him to a German hospital until the poison had time to work its way out of his system. Navalny survived that murder attempt, but unfortunately, Putin persisted, and he got his way this time. And Alexei Navalny wasn't the only man Putin likely had murdered last week. The body of a Russian military pilot who defected from Russia by flying a military helicopter into Ukraine was found riddled with bullets and run over by a car in Spain. He is dead likely because he dared to vocally oppose Russia's war in Ukraine. These murders are yet another reminder of the unadulterated brutality of the Putin regime, which Navalny was far too familiar with. And while he had made it his life's work to stand up to Putin's violence and evil, Navalny, in the final weeks of his life, had warned of another threat, another evil, Donald Trump. According to The New York Times, Navalny wrote to a friend recently that Trump's agenda for a second term as the American president looked, quote, really scary. After Navalny's death, Trump dared to compare himself to the martyred opposition leader, claiming that stealing classified material, trying to nullify the votes of 81 million Americans and vowing to shoot people who object to his policies was tantamount to Navalny's quest to bring freedom of speech and democracy to Russia. Mind you. Trump has never put himself in grave danger. He is a physical coward who, when called upon by his country to serve during the Vietnam War, declined because his feet hurt. 
And while America's former coward in chief puts putts away on a golf course between court hearings while comparing himself to Navalny, the reality is much more apparent. Trump is America's Putin, so much so that he had his lawyer argue that as president, he could order SEAL Team 6, one of America's most elite military institutions, to murder his political opponents, which is literally what Putin seems to have just done to Alexei Navalny. The similarities don't end there. Putin and Trump both want to twist their countries into the same awful thing, a Christian nationalist state. According to Politico, yet another think tank close to Trump is working on plans to make that happen if he returns to the White House. Politico obtained documents showing that according to the Center for Renewing America, led by a right-wing extremist named Russell Vought, Trump's former OMB director, Christian nationalism is a top priority, along with invoking the Insurrection Act on day one to quash protests and refusing to spend authorized congressional funds on unwanted projects. Thanks to reporting from Politico, the New York Times and Axios, we now know that CRA and Project 25 have a long list of plans for America on day one of a second Trump administration, including mass deportations, shooting migrants at the border, full immunity for police to kill at will, gutting the EPA, terminating the Constitution, bombing Mexico, exiting NATO, banning Muslims from entering the country, imposing ideological screenings for immigrants, revoking student visas of those who protest on college campuses against Israel. He also wants to dismantle the Department of Education, enforce Florida-style patriotic education in our schools, end federal funding of any schools that mention so-called critical race theory, gender ideology, or what people like Stephen Miller determined to be inappropriate racial, sexual, or political content. They intend to force children to learn about their version of the nuclear family, including the roles of mothers and fathers and things that make men and women different and unique. That's what our kids will learn in Trump's Christian nationalist public schools, while corporations and America's wealthiest men like Jamie Dimon, Elon Musk, and every other rich celebrity supporting Trump get yet another yet another giant tax cut. Or maybe they just cease to pay any taxes at all. And I didn't even get to the national abortion ban Trump is planning and the further plans of the right wing majority on the Supreme Court. The conservative majority on the court, led by Samuel Alito and Clarence Thomas, have already waged a full frontal assault on modern society, including repealing the civil rights era, abortion access and affirmative action. And they are currently gunning for contraceptive access and maybe even gay marriage. And that is because justices like Alito and Thomas share the religious far right's grievances about society's evolution. Alito once complained that in certain quarters, religious liberty is fast becoming a disfavored right, while the ultimate second-tier constitutional right in the minds of some is the Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms. Why would he care about actual second-class citizens like women, the poor, black and brown people, or gays, lesbians, and trans people? Alito and Trump are joined by House Speaker Mike Johnson, who, according to one MSNBC columnist, is the most unabashedly Christian nationalist speaker in U.S. history, which means he, too, wants to basically eviscerate the separation between church and state. He once called homosexuality an inherently unnatural and dangerous lifestyle. Now, if all of this sounds like The Handmaid's Tale, congratulations. 
you get it. Yesterday, Mike Johnson made his maiden pilgrimage as speaker to Mar-a-Lago to pledge his allegiance, not to the Constitution, but to Donald Trump. On the same day that Trump was voted by historians as the worst president in U.S. history. Joining me now is Eugene Robinson, Washington Post columnist and MSNBC political analyst, and Stephen Levitsky, professor of government at Harvard University and co-author of How Democracies Die. His latest book is Tyranny of the Minority. Thank you both for being here. Eugene, I do want to start with you. You have been an international uh, reporter. You have reported on other countries, including autocracies. How close do you feel ours is coming to those? Ours, too close for comfort, to tell you the truth, Joy. Uh, And the thing is that let's imagine for a second that Donald Trump gets elected president again and does half of the things that he says he's going to do. Um, Once, you know, four years, we'll survive the four years somehow, we'll fight tooth and nail, everything bad that he's trying to do. But in the end, when you lose these norms, when you lose that basic principle of the separation of church and state, for example, when you lose respect for the independent uh, justice system, um, it's very hard to get those things back. And I watched countries in South America that had undergone years of, of autocracy trying to get their democratic norms back. And it's really difficult Easy to lose them, hard to get them back. Yeah. And, and, and here's how it begins, um, Stephen Levitsky. It begins with cowards. Not just Trump, who's a physical coward and tries to compare himself to a very brave man, the late uh, Mr. Navalny, but also people like Tim Scott. Because Tim Scott is vowing to say that it wouldn't be four years, that if he were somehow made vice president, which he's desperate to be, he would do what Mike Pence would not. Here is Tim Scott. I'm not going to answer hypothetical questions, number one. And you voted to certify the, the election results in the Senate in the first Republican debate last I year. Did. You said Vice President Pence, quote, absolutely did the right thing. That's still your view, though, yes? I have not changed my view. Here's the question. You're asking a hypothetical question that you know can never happen again. They're all Tim Scott, Stephen. All of the Republicans elected right now in Congress, House and Senate, they would all concede and allow Donald Trump to stay in office? How would they ever get him to leave? Because they wouldn't even try, clearly. This is what keeps me up at night, Joy. Um, A single leader, even somebody uh, like Donald Trump, cannot kill democracy on his own. He needs accomplices. And um, it's mainstream politicians who serve as those accomplices. The fact that the Republican Party leadership, all of it at this point, has made it abundantly clear that they will condone, they will tolerate, they will accept, uh, they will go along with virtual, virtually all of Trump's authoritarian shenanigans, which is very different from the Republican Party even a decade ago. All of the critics, all the even the few people who stood up to Donald Trump during his first term have been run out of the Republican Party. And so now the entire party is saying that it is willing to back Trump even if he's convicted of having tried to overturn an election. This is an it's not just Trump. The entire Republican Party Mm -hmm. has turned away from democracy. 
Right. And the thing is, they're doing it for very pecuniary, the the, the sort of most base reason, (laughs) Eugene, money. They're doing it because they know if he gets back in there, they'll probably never have to pay taxes again. Let's talk about Russell Vought. He's currently cited as a potential chief of staff in a a second Trump White House. He's the president of something called the Center for Renewing America, a think tank, a leading group in a conservative consortium preparing for a second Trump term. He's embraced the idea that he says Christians are under assault. He's spoken of policies that he might pursue in response. The things that they want to do are to essentially strip women of all of their personal rights and do what Mr. Millet has done in Argentina, where his economic proposals um, include essentially turning uh, it into the sort of ultra capitalist state, um, helping particularly young men. Um, he's made abortion illegal. And once he's vowed to overturn abortion legality. So essentially, we're going to sort of go down the road of Argentina, including making this a Christian nationalist state. That's the plan. We don't want to do that. We we really don't want to do that. I lived in Argentina. We, you know, I I, I love the people and everything, but we don't don't want to follow them in terms of government and and how they arrange their government. You know, uh, Vought wants to make, uh, he wants to give Christian nationalism an image makeover. And make it like a bright and sunny and good thing. Um, and, and you know, oh, the Constitution it doesn't really say separation of church and state, uh, according to him. Um, that that piece, uh, the political piece, I believe, uh, about his plans is really frightening. And one of the most frightening things is that uh, apparent plans to bring back one of. Trump's worst appointees, Michael Flynn, who pops Mm -hmm. up in that story later on. Uh, And he's, you know, he's become a Christian nationalist nut. I guess he always was, or he has been for a long time. Um, This is, I'll tell you, this is extreme. uh, And it is, um, it's not irreversible, but it, this is, really terrible um for the for the country and as Stephen said the republican party is fine with this and it's not only allowing it but is aiding it and and abetting it and pushing it forward um in a very deliberate way well and on top of that what we're talking about Stephen levitsky is not just is not making america great it's making america a satellite of russia uh, Putin has made it very clear he would like to regain the old satellites of the Soviet Union, not just Ukraine, but Poland and any other satellite he wants, Czechoslovakia, whichever, whichever he like to reclaim as satellites of Russia. One of the satellites he would claim is the United States. We have already now seen that apparently um, the DOJ FBI informant um, who made up the Hunter Biden conspiracy theory that was supposed to bring down Joe Biden. Not only is he now an arrested criminal, Alexander Smirnov has admitted that associate, that officials associated with Russian intelligence were involved in passing the story about Hunter Biden um, around, that they were the ones helping to push this on places like Fox News. Um, the people who are the most opposed to helping Ukraine, the Elise Stefanics, the Byron Donalds, the all of them, they go down and they do this thumbs up picture with Trump. They all pledge allegiance to Trump. But in the end, who they really, truly have allegiance to apparently is Russia, because all of them want, I guess, to see Russia, what, win the war in Ukraine. So we wouldn't even be the boss in this in this scenario. We would be the junior partner and Putin would be the boss. 
Yeah, I'm not sure it's I would go as far as to say that Trump wants to make America satellite of Russia again. There's no question that Trump's foreign policy toward Russia would be awful and would give Putin a free hand in, in a way that is devastating for the for the West. I think what most troubles me, though, is that Trump wants to make America the 1950s again. And this gets back to this issue of Christian nationalism. The heart and soul of Republican activism today is Christian nationalism. What is that about? That's about that is a reaction to the changes that have gone on in this country over the last 50 years. In 1976, when when I was a kid, 80 percent of Americans called themselves white and Christian. By 2016, that number was down to 43%. White Christians are a minority in this country. They're a shrinking minority, and they're terrified. And the, the only way to go back, and this is what frightens me, the only way to go back to the 1950s is through authoritarianism, right? You cannot transform this society as diverse as it is today and go back to the world of the 1950s without a heavy dose of authoritarianism. Violence, repression, illegal behavior. Mm -hmm. That's what's coming if we don't watch out. And then what happens to all of those? Because people, uh, Eugene Robinson, aren't just going to take that lying down. right? It's not as if black people are going to go back to the 1950s and regain segregation. Uh, Women are not going to just give up their rights without a fight. So this sounds like a recipe for civil war. Well, you know, I I hesitate to say civil war, but it's going to be a fight. Um, it, you know, it, it, because you're absolutely right. Um, we are not going to give up all this ground that has been gained, and we're not going to change back to what we were in the 1950s, which were not really a, like that great a time for black people in this country. As, you or for know, women, uh, or for anyone. Uh, so, you know, those, those were not the good old days. You know, these are the much better days. And so, no, people are not going to take this line down. You know, I got to say one thing about the about the Russia angle, though. The fact that now this informant says it was Russian intelligence that was feeding me all this these lies about Hunter Biden and Joe Biden. I mean, it was all true, right? uh, Trump always comes out, Russia, 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 it's a hoax. It was all true. It really happened. They really did it. (laughs) And there's a reason they want him back in power and that Navalny was afraid he'd get back in power because Russia would have a full free hand with Donald Trump back in the White House. Eugene Robinson, Stephen Levitsky, thank you very much. We say scaring, scaring on the show. Uh, And so we appreciate you. Up next on The Readout, Trump's grift shop is open for business and his supporters are just lighting up to fork over their hard-earned cash. But not all Republicans are on board. The Readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. 
Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. President Trump is the best president we, have, we ever have in American history on his way to become the world's greatest leader the world ever seen before. I understand him. It's not, it's not him being a jerk. He's sarcastic. He's funny. And I love him. I do. I love him. We need him. He's a Christian. He's a good, honest man. They're after him for no reason. Wow. When you listen to some of Donald Trump's most ardent followers, you would think they're talking about the coming of the Messiah and not the grifter he more closely resembles. The last woman that we showed you was with Trump over the weekend when he announced his latest ploy to get his supporters to fork over hundreds of dollars for the very tasteless Trump sneakers he's hawking. And true to form, it's all about the small print. As our friend Tristan Snell, former assistant attorney general of New York, points out, those sneakers are not only not expected to ship until summer at best, they include the disclaimer, we cannot guarantee when an order will arrive. But of course, that money will have already lined Trump's little pockets, regardless of whether those sneakers ever make it onto the feet of his faithful followers. It is just the latest way Republicans are acting less like a political party and more like a cult or as devout followers of a televangelist pledging more and more of their fixed incomes to their dear leader. Right now, you have Trump pushing to place his own people in key positions at the RNC, including his daughter-in-law, Lara Trump, who says if she is elected, every single penny will go to the number one and the only job of the RNC, electing her father-in-law. That has some senior Republicans who perhaps haven't drunk all the Kool-Aid yet, fearful that it would mean the committee will once again cover Trump's legal bills rather than using the money to, oh, I don't know, support candidates up and down the ticket. It's a legitimate concern because there are those Republican lawmakers who are more than happy to not only spend their supporters money to foot Trump's bills, but even taxpayer money while they're at it. There was a growing push by Republican lawmakers in Florida to do just that with a bill that would have allowed the state of Florida to hand up to $5 million in Florida taxpayer revenue to pay Trump's legal bills. It was only stopped because, wait for it, Governor Ron DeSantis, of all people, who I should note is no longer running for president, threatened to veto such a bill. Joining me now is Tara Sentmeyer, senior advisor to the Lincoln Project, who once served as a Republican communications director on Capitol Hill before leaving the party. And I just want to see if you and I agree, Tara, that if Ron DeSantis still thought he was viable for president, he would have not threatened a veto. He would have signed off and Florida would be paying Trump's legal bills. Of course. I mean, there's no question about that. Um, this idea that the Republican Party has turned into a cult is something that I said back in 2018. This really isn't new. I think what becomes more apparent now is just how obvious it is. It may not have, it was obvious to all of us who right. weren't, who weren't yes. part of it, but there were a lot of people inside the party that were trying to deny what was really happening here. But since 2020, since the denial of the election and then the insurrection and then everything that's happened after that, when um, Republicans did not off ramp and said they tripled down on the big lie. And then you have the mainstream mainstream Republicans, which are very few and far between now going along with Donald Trump. He is now even more blatant than he was before about his authoritarian motives here. It's it's not a dog right. whistle anymore. He's bragging about it and tripling down on it. And people are going, yeah, they're they're cheering behind him and not just his loyal supporters. 
It's now people like the Tim Scotts of the world, the Elise yeah. Stefanics, people who should know better that now it's giving a permission structure to people who thought they were the normies that oh, I guess this is OK. That's what Stephen Levitsky's book is about. And I'm glad that they wrote it. Yeah. And it's literally I mean, literally, we show the thumbs up pictures. I mean, they even made little Wayne do the picture like they all have to go down and do a specific symbol of their adoration for him. The thumbs up has become a thing. You must go down there and take this picture with him. Or when he was the whiteest, you had to go in the whiteest to do it. It reminds me not just of a cult, but also this. Let me play that. I'm old enough to remember the, the whole televangelist thing that took off in the 80s. Oh, yeah. Here it is. And actually, this is in 2019. Here is televangelist Jim Baker, who is a sort of version of Donald Trump for TV. This coin is our point of contact. When I asked the Lord why the coin, the Lord said, because when you take the coin, it's a point of contact. So your faith is being released with a million other believers to pray protection and peace and wisdom and counsel over the president of the United States and over his family. Okay, so what's on that coin, Tara, is a picture of Donald Trump. It's probably a gold-plated coin, but people are <laughs> going to pay for it. They're going to do it. Let yeah. me just put up how much money Trump owes. $355 million plus interest in the New York civil fraud trial case. It's already over $400 million with interest. $88 million to E. Jean Carroll, plus the five he already owed her. Nine thirty-eight for filing frivolous lawsuit against Hillary Clinton. 400000 in legal fees to the New York Times after suing them unsuccessfully. All of that money, I do believe he is going to get his his base, they're going to pay for it because they they are like the fans of a televangelist. Uh, yeah, I mean, he, he's going to try. I mean, they'll they'll raise a lot of money. But the, the televangelist part of this, I think, is something that people need to understand. They are using the same tactics because these are people who are looking for somewhere to belong. Donald Trump has been smart enough to to make this about them, not him. When he says, I am your voice. They are coming after me. I'm the only thing that stops them from coming after you. And this is catering to a very large, alarmingly large amount of Americans who feel as though they've been left behind and that Donald Trump is their champion and he's their voice. And all of those, the lowest common denominator things that they weren't allowed to do or say before, Donald Trump has given them uh, a sense of belonging. And when you watch people that are so indoctrinated and so deceived, right? A lot of this, it's the same thing with these mega preachers that prey on people who are looking for answers to things. They want simple answers, right and wrong, good versus evil. The fact that yeah. Donald Trump is using that good versus evil Christian nationalist rhetoric now and fully embracing that is something that I think it allows for people to no longer respect our democratic institutions because there's a higher power that's calling them now to support right. him. This, is, this isn't even about Trump anymore. It's about good and evil. Yeah. That gives people an idea like Stephen Bannon, who's out here trying to use this holy war crap, that gives them even the right to say, I'm going to take up arms because it's it God's yeah. will to do it. If, if people yeah. took one day and watched the indoctrinating rhetoric that the right-wing ecosystem is pumping into people just one day, I think Democrats would freak out and realize what they're actually up against. Because I don't know yeah. that they fully understand what we're actually up against. And when you start talking about yeah. holy war stuff, this is this yeah. is far it's beyond dangerous. just your average policy uh, argument over something or whether Joe Biden is too old or not. That, that we, yeah. we need to understand the enemy that we're facing here. Indeed. You guys, you're from the Lincoln Project. Let's play you guys this new ad, a little bit of it. Mm -hmm. Donnie, I always knew you'd blow it. You were always a fool, a joke, low rent. I bailed you out so many times. Your deals were all garbage. You couldn't even make money off a casino, you f***. 
I'm ashamed you have my name. <laughs> why are you using AI Fred Trump against his son, against Donnie? Joy, you know why. Because, you know, Donald Trump's <laughs> entire existence has been about trying to please his daddy. And his, his yes. father always knew that he was a screw up. And a line that was written in that ad, if you watch the whole thing, it says, I may have lost my mind, but I never lost my businesses. And haunting <laughs> Donald Trump is the ghost of Fred Trump. And this, right. will, this may not be the only time he hears that. So we're doing that to yeah. also remind people that Donald Trump has screwed things up. His father's business. He didn't build it. His father did. His and father this is the did. same guy yeah. that bankrupted casinos. Steaks, yeah. vodka, water, charities. I mean, the list is very long here, but yet yeah. people think that he's a successful businessman. No, he's actually not. So we'll continue to to poke at him about that because it's the truth. Bankrupted casinos in Atlantic City. It's really Correct. hard to do. Tara said my really yes. hard to do is Tara said my <laughs> thank you, my friend. Much appreciated. Still ahead. We're still on a still waiting on a decision from the Supreme Court on whether they will hear arguments on citizen Trump's bogus claim of absolute immunity. Legal scholar Neil Katyal joins me with his thoughts on the likelihood of that happening and when after this. Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at MSNBC.com. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. Within a matter of days, the U.S. Supreme Court could rule on the two most consequential Trump legal matters. We are awaiting a ruling on Donald Trump's 14th Amendment ballot disqualification case in Colorado and a ruling in his presidential immunity case. Trump has asked the court to pause the lower court ruling, rejecting his claim of absolute immunity for his acts in the lead up to the January 6th insurrection. Special counsel Jack Smith has urged the court to reject Trump's request and move quickly. A reminder that in its unanimous 57-page decision, the D.C. Circuit Court torched nearly every aspect of Trump's main arguments, reminding us all that for the purpose of this criminal case, former President Trump has become citizen Trump with all of the defenses of any other criminal defendant. Rulings on emergency applications can come at any time. Friend of the show and Supreme Court scholar Neil Katyal suspects we will know whether the court will hear the immunity case within the next 72 hours. And joining me now is MSNBC legal analyst Neil Katyal, professor of law at Georgetown University and former acting solicitor general. And I, I don't know what you're rooting for. I'm not going to guess, Neil. But what I'm rooting for is that the Supreme Court says we're going to stay out of it because I did read that 57 page ruling by the D.C. Circuit Court. Looked good to me. That's exactly right, Joy. The Supreme Court gets about 10,000 requests a year to hear cases, and it hears about 60. And it only hears cases in which granting the case and hearing it is going to make a difference to the parties. And here, I don't think there's any way, shape, or form in which 
hearing this case is going to change the bottom line result that Donald Trump doesn't have absolute immunity. I mean, it's true. The Supreme Court has never squarely said a former president has absolute immunity from criminal acts, but that's because no president has ever acted so preposterously as to advance such a notion. It's so obvious. And, you know, what made it really clear was the oral argument in this case and the Court of Appeals when Trump's lawyer admitted basically that their theory would mean Donald Trump could set out send out Navy SEAL Team 6 while president to assassinate his political rival and there'd be no criminal consequences. That's an insane yeah. proposition. Yeah. It's like everything that we fought the revolution against. And so, yes, I don't think the Supreme Court should touch this case with a 10-foot pole. It's thorough. It's well-written. It's a unanimous decision with a very conservative judge on the Court of Appeals siding totally totally against Donald Trump, lock, stock, and barrel. Yeah, just leave it as it is. Um, let, let's talk about the other case that they did here. And it was fascinating listening to the oral arguments in this Colorado case. It seems clear to me that Donald Trump violated, and look, I'm not a lawyer, so but just my uh, layman's ear listening to it, that he did violate Section 3 of the, of the 14th Amendment. If they say he didn't, or they say he can be on the ballot, what are the implications of that? So first of all, I agree with your premise. I think that the whole history behind the 14th Amendment, Section 3, is about something like Donald Trump. And so I think there's a right legal answer to this question, did Donald Trump violate the 14th Amendment? It's a clear legal answer, and the answer is yes. Unfortunately, I think the oral argument, and oral arguments matter, I think the oral argument by the challengers to Donald Trump went terribly for them. They had no coherent theory about what they were saying or about the original understanding of this important amendment, which, you know, you and I know was, you know, forged at the most important moment in our nation's history when, you know, thousands of lives had been shed for a principle, and we wanted to make sure that insurrectionists would not come back into our government. And now, lo and behold, insurrectionists have come back or are about to come back into our government. And that's what they're running. For. That's what this 14th Amendment dispute is all about. And unfortunately, none of that really came out. So I do... Uh Fortunately, I suspect the U.S. Supreme Court will deny what the Colorado Supreme Court did because the Colorado Supreme yeah. Court was left virtually defenseless. Wow, that's unfortunate. All right, well, let, let me let you listen to Letitia James, because this is on the other side. This might actually be real accountability for Trump, financial accountability. Here's Letitia James tonight uh, on ABC News. If he does not have funds uh, to pay off the judgment, uh, then we will seek, uh, you know, judgment enforcement mechanisms in court, and we will ask the judge to seize his assets. So we know that uh, Donald Trump was ordered to pay $355 million uh, plus interest. And right now the interest has got it up above north of $450 million. What do you make of the fact that she is saying they're going to come for the assets? Because that really actually is the only kind of accountability he seems to be facing, financial. Yeah, so Donald Trump owes now over a half billion dollars when you combine these judgments last week with the Gene Carroll judgments. And at over half a billion dollars, we're not in bake sale territory anymore. This is, to use Donald Trump's words, huge money that he's going to have to come up with in a short amount of time. Um, he's going to have to sell an awful lot of tacky gold sneakers to pay off those judgments. <laughs> um, maybe he thinks Mexico is going to pay for it. I don't know. But this is, um, you know, 
finally the rule of law coming to Donald Trump and holding him accountable. And I think what New York's done here and their willingness to signal, we are going to go after this money. This is money we won after a trial. You lost Donald Trump. So now it's our turn to collect. I think they're going to collect. And I think it's going to pose, you know, a, you know, for the first time, Donald Trump starting to face the music. You know, it, there is an irony to me, Neil, that it does feel like all the little guys uh, went to prison at every level of the insurrection. But it does seem that for Donald Trump, he does seem to always wriggle away. And the only way he is being made to pay is by people like Letitia James that are making him pay out of his pockets. Is that what we're looking at here, that that's the only way he's going to pay is financially for all of these crimes? No, I don't think so. So, you know, remember on March 25th, the criminal trial is going to begin. And up until March 25th, I agree with you, Michael Cohen went to jail for those crimes. Trump had so far skated free. But on March 25th, there will be a criminal trial in New York over Trump's hush money payments and what he did in terms of illegal campaign contributions and the like. That's the first trial. I agree with you that he still hasn't faced accountability for January 6th, one of the most momentous moment, horrible moments in our history, and something that's still inconceivable to me that a president of the United States would act the way he did. So he's got to mm -hmm. face that. That's He's so scared. That's why he goes and runs yeah. to the Supreme Court pleading absolute immunity, because he's afraid of a trial. He's afraid of what a jury yeah. would say. Yeah. If Enrique Tarrio has to go to jail for it, and if he should have to go to jail for it. You're right. It was the most scurrilous, scandalous thing any president has ever done. And if he gets away with it, shame on us as a country. Neil Katyal, thank you very much. And coming up, Israel sets a deadline for the release of all remaining hostages before it begins its assault on Rafah. An American doctor who volunteered in Gaza joins us next to tell us what that assault would look like for Palestinians there. We'll be right back. Today, for the third time, the United States used its veto power to kill a U.N. Security Council resolution calling for an immediate end to the war in Gaza, claiming it would jeopardize hostage negotiations. Instead, the U.S. is circulating an alternative draft resolution, which calls for a temporary ceasefire and opposes any ground operation in Gaza's southernmost city of Rafah. But so far, the U.S. has been unsuccessful in its efforts to restrain Israel's assault. As Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu vows to, quote, finish the job, while a member of his war cabinet is threatening to invade Rafah by the Muslim holy month of Ramadan if the remaining hostages are not released. It comes as the situation in Gaza is growing more dire by the day, with the death toll nearing 30,000, according to the Palestinian Health Ministry, while countless others are facing a humanitarian catastrophe, displaced, shelterless and starving. One American doctor who volunteered at a hospital in southern Gaza last month is shedding light on just how devastating the conditions are on the ground, writing in a harrowing op-ed for the L.A. Times, quote, I have worked in other war zones, but what I witnessed during 10 days in Gaza was not war. It was annihilation. Joining me now is the author of that op-ed, Dr. Ifran Galaria. And Dr. Galaria, thank you so much for being here. Uh, I read your op-ed and it broke my heart, to be honest with you. Um, so I want to allow you to just speak and tell me what you saw and what you experienced in Gaza. Of course. And Joy, thanks for having me on the show. 
You know, I, I understand in war that you're going to have civilian casualties, you're going to have displaced citizens, but it only took us a few minutes crossing into Rafa, Gaza, to recognize and realize what we were really stepping into. Myself and my team immediately recognized that what we were facing was an extraordinary humanitarian crisis. This was unbelievable. Imagine joy, almost one million displaced civilians struggling for shelter, struggling for food, struggling for water. It was an incredible sight to take in. And let's talk about inside the hospitals, because we know hospitals have been bombed. They have been uh, invaded in some instances. Are there doctors still operating in these hospitals? Are there emergency rooms operating? I mean, you describe these hospitals doubling basically as shelters. Correct. You know, the entire healthcare system in Gaza has is broken. It's utterly collapsed. And let me explain to you the scene of when we first saw the European Gaza Hospital. As you drive toward the hospital, you begin to start seeing collections and clusters of tents that start blocking the roads and start clinging to the side of the hospital. Patients were then in this is a hospital that was designed to take care for about 300 patients, and yet it was filled with 1,000 patients. And the humanity that you saw outside began to spill into the hallways. People were living in stair corridors, in storage closets. What they would do is hang up a blanket or a sheet to, par to cordon off little areas, to create small areas of privacy for them. The hospital was completely overwhelmed. And the physicians and the medical staff, not only were they struggling through all the same things that the rest of the Palestinians were struggling through, but they then were overwhelmed and exhausted. And I'll give you an example. A plastic surgeon who I worked with, he was the only plastic surgeon in the hospital. He was covering it 24-7, and his home was destroyed, and he was living in the hospital during this whole time. You also describe um, parents bringing in their children with a hole through the front of their head from sniper fire. So were you seeing a lot of those kinds of victims, children who had been shot with, by sniper fire? Correct. You know, my, myself and my team, we felt there was a disturbingly high number of civilian casualties. We did not feel that there were really being, there was a distinction being made between targeting terrorist soldiers and targeting civilians. And these stories that you just described is what we were hearing and seeing routinely. I was in the hospital. I lived there, literally slept on the floor of the operating room holding area because there there's no other place for me, me to stay. The incident that you're describing was one that happened on a regular basis. On that particular incident, several children were brought in to the hospital with head injuries, and they were cared for by one of the members of our team. It was very disturbing to take care of. Um, the one in six children in northern Gaza is severely malnourished, according to UNICEF. Did you see signs of hunger and starvation? Everywhere. I mean, at, in the morning, as soon as we left our guest house for the very first day, you see lines collecting around food distribution sites. And in the hospital, almost all the patients were universally cachectic. They were poorly, had poor nutrition. They were dehydrated. And you know, Joy, this actually contributed to a lot of the medical problems that they were enduring. Because yeah. they were, their protein was so poor, because their health was so poor, they weren't able to heal.
Dr. Ifran Galaria, uh, thank you for doing what you did and for coming back and telling us what you saw. I appreciate you. Joy, thank you so much. I wanted to quickly present to you with a small gift. This was a, a stone from the Mediterranean coast that a child handed to me on my final day. Inscribed in Arabic on this, says, from Gaza, with love, despite the pain. And on behalf of the children of Palestine, I'd like to offer this to you. Um, I, I am not worthy of having that. I thank you so much. Um, I'm trying not to cry on TV. Thank you. Uh, God bless you. I so appreciate that. That means a lot to me. I will, I will keep that as an honor forever. Thank you. Thank you for allowing me to share their stories. Thank you. We'll be right back. We'll be right back. Before we go tonight, be sure to join me, Rachel Maddow, and the whole team Saturday night for special coverage of the South Carolina primary. As always, Steve Kornacki will be at the big board to break down the results as they come in. Our special coverage begins at 6.30 p.m. Eastern Saturday night right here on MSNBC. Hey, everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow.